Amen. Thank you, Jen and Kristen, musicians. Let's get our Bibles out, open to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 or page 1357 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, you can just reach in front of you, grab that hardback Bible, turn to page 1357, you'll find the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Um, We're studying through this letter in a series called Flourish, and we're about five weeks into that, and we've been looking at what uh, is going on in this city, Thessalonica on the Aegean Sea, uh, really has a lot uh, of similarities to Gulfport. It's similar in population, Uh, it's uh, located on the water, it was a port city, it uh, was a place where the gospel could freely move in different directions. Um, Paul comes according to the book of Acts in chapter 17. He comes and preaches in the synagogue for a few weeks in Thessalonica. And the gospel just begins to take hold of people in that city. And after three weeks, a mob came up against him and ran him out of the city. Him and uh, his compadres, Timothy and Silas. And so out the city they go to Berea and then they followed them to Berea and ran them out of Berea and persecuted and beat many of the believers that were left behind in Thessalonica. And so this little fledgling group of new believers that Paul left behind and uh, because he had to and he writes this letter back to him and it's really been just a remarkable uh, time for us to study together. And so we're in chapter 2 and we're going to Begin reading today in verse 17, and we'll read through chapter 3, verse 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from, from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation. But as it happened, and you know, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, God. We receive it this morning as your word intended for us. Thank you for this perfect, inerrant scripture that you have preserved for us, Lord. Thank you for all that it will mean to us today. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and use this word. Make it penetrate our hearts, Father. Show us the things you want us to see and Give us ears to hear, Lord. I pray you just anoint my words and use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So Paul, you know, Mr., uh, he's never short for words. And so in that little section of Scripture, you are hearing the, the, the intense uh, emotion and love that Paul is exuding towards these people in Thessalonica. And basically, uh, what he's saying here in everything that I just read is he's saying that, listen, we really have wanted to come see you. And we've tried to come see you, but Satan has hindered us. So we sent Timothy to come and see you. And he came back and reported of all the amazing things that were going on there. And so we are really, really glad about what God is doing in Thessalonica. Now I want you to try to think for a moment uh, about what person in history uh, was more impactful on the world than the Apostle Paul. Try to think of someone who left a greater mark, who made a greater impact, who uh, created a greater shift, a more lasting change with the events of their life than the Apostle Paul. And when you start thinking about that question, um, you know, you, you, most of you start answering the Sunday school answer in your head. And the golden rule is, is that if the only person that's ahead of you is Jesus, you're doing pretty good. Because Jesus is the only one ahead of Paul. Paul, this amazing church planner, this amazing theologian, he left such an indelible mark on all of history. God used him in such an amazing way. And it's just been so good for us to study through the life of Paul on Sunday nights and then to walk through this letter on Sunday mornings and how it's all worked together. It's really been uh, truly a blessing. But what's going on in Thessalonica? Well, we can track with the book of Acts... Uh, you know, we can find out what's going on, what Paul's alluding to when he's talking to us in 1 Thessalonians. In Acts 17, here's what the Bible says, But the Jews who were, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, they set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Jason is the place where Paul was staying in Thessalonica. Verse 6 of Acts 17 says, But when they did not find him, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These are those who have turned the world upside down, and they've come here too. You see, think about who's saying that. These are the enemies of the gospel. These aren't fans of the gospel. These are enemies of the gospel that are declaring to the rulers of the city, these are the ones who have set the world upside down. And so Paul, this, the, this great influencer of change, has so impacted this people in such a short amount of time. The gospel has, has so infiltrated into their setting and changed the setting of the story that their lives were telling. It's just truly remarkable and and so in Thessalonica, the people there had become, in many ways, like Paul. That's what we'll see this morning. You see, they didn't just create chaos in Thessalonica. It wasn't just that the Jews were in an uproar because it was just chaotic. I mean, we have chaos in our nation all the time in various places, protests, problems, situations. It's not just random chaos, it's a specific chaos. And remember, Paul told us about specifically what it was back in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 8, where he said, 
For from you the, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. You see, Thessalonica was the capital city in the Roman province of Macedonia. And so from there, it was the word of God that had sounded forth, that what created the chaos was all centered on the word of God that Paul had brought to them and then the word of God that they then had taken hold of and began to propagate amongst themselves and the people around them. And so as we read these words at the end of chapter 2 and on into chapter 3, there's some questions I think we need to ask ourselves. There's some, some things that sort of jump out off the page that maybe this morning we should spend a few moments and, and just think through. You see, if these words that, that we're looking at in 1 Thessalonians, if, if these are the words of a from God, but they're words of a man that God used to change the world. And if the Thessalonians became like him in a very short time, how do we become like that? You see, what I want to know is, I want to turn the world upside down. I, I, want, to, I want to change things. I want to be a difference maker. I want to make the most of the story that God's given me to tell. And I know many of you do as well. And so the question maybe that we just kind of start rolling around in our head is, how do we become a person like that? What is it about uh, the Apostle Paul? And what is it about this, this group of believers in Thessalonica? What, what can we learn from them that we can maybe take away and apply to our, our own lives in our own setting? Well, I think... The first answer to the question of how do you become a, a person like that? How do you become a person that changes the world? Well, you don't do it alone, that's for sure. You do not do it alone. You see, Paul didn't do it alone. You, you notice that, that, that Paul said when we could endure it no longer, we, we thought it okay to stay by ourselves and to send Timothy. You, can, you know, it wasn't just an easy decision to send Timothy, you know, but because they were very close, Paul and his, his ministry partners. And so to send Timothy, was, it was a bit risky to send him by himself. And, and, and they were going to be separated for a while, but it was important to Paul. He wanted to know what was going on there, so he sent him. And then there's this amazing thing going on in Thessalonica that looks very much like what's going on in Paul's life. No one was doing it alone. So if, if Paul's teaching us anything here, here's your first blanks on your uh, worship God. Communities change cultures, not individuals. Communities change cultures, not individuals. This isn't the story of Paul. Uh, this isn't the story of Paul going into Thessalonica and raising up some uh, wonderfully gifted leader who then was the, the, the person that everyone rallied around and followed. No, it, this is... This is Paul who operated in community, in a, in a ministry community with others. And when he went into a community, he, he, he taught them how to bond together. Remember how in chapter 1, when we first got into this study, we talked about how we see people sitting in the same setting. And we, we used us for an example, and we said that 
we were, you know, to, to oversimplify, and let's just say that, that we're going to uh, make our story all the same, that all of us were living in Gulfport, that God invaded our lives some way with the, with the gospel, changed our setting, and brought us into this new setting. But just because you come into this setting doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in the setting then responds to the setting the same. Then we, we talked about how in every setting in your life you make choices and those choices determine the context of the story that your life tells, right? And so you can come into a setting where there's a lot of people on fire for God but not necessarily be on fire for God. You can just be around that. It, 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 it doesn't automatically uh, just jump on you. You know, uh, Paul mentions that uh, as he was trying so hard in verse 18 to get back and to see them, that Satan hindered him. And uh, I think it was about, about 5 o'clock yesterday afternoon. I started to not feel good. And uh, I don't get sick very often. And it's been years since I've been sick or had the flu and but I could tell something wasn't right. I went home and I got in the bed and uh, it wasn't long before I was laying there wrapped up in blankets, shivering, sweating all at the same time. All night long, I'm burning up, uh, wide awake, miserable, aching, hurting, thinking to myself, dadgum Pastor Rod got on a plane and flew to Colorado and here I am dying. <laughs> Matt's got company in town. But I could bomb him. So I text Matt this morning just to tell him, hey, man, listen, you know, if I pass out, you know, during the message, you, you can come up here and get my notes and finish it up. And he didn't answer. <laughs> you see how Satan's trying to hinder us here. But all night I'm, I'm like, Lord, just give me the strength. Just give me the strength to get through the night so I can uh, stand and proclaim your word. And, and so here, but, but my point is, is that the spiritual things that are going on in Thessalonica are not like the flu. It's not like, uh, it, it doesn't just jump on you when you're around people. It's not like catching a cold. It's, it's different. It, it's, it, you can be in that setting, but you have to make choices that are going to, uh, connect you to what the opportunities are that God's placed you within. And so I guess what we could also say about communities is that communities change cultures, but not all community is equal. Not all community is equal. I mean, I think that I was thinking about this. I thought, well, you know, for all of my life, I've been in some form of community with some group of people. And certainly... Uh, that radically changed after God saved me. And then that's, you know, uh, radically changed over that period of time as well. But we're always in community, but not all community is equal. You see, you can have community like there was going on in Thessalonica that actually turns the world upside down. And then you can have communities right next door to that or right within the same context as that, the same setting as that, that are really of no significance whatsoever. 
So it's not just that we need to be part of a, a team. It's not just that we need to be part of a group. It's more than that. It's more than just being connected to other people. It's, I think maybe this is how I would ask the question. How do I become part of a team that changes the world? That's more specific. It's not just part of a team, but how do I become part of a team that changes the world? If, I, if, if, if we want to... If we want to become a person like Paul, if we want to become a person like the people in Thessalonica, we want to become part of a team that changes the world. I mean, I want to be a part of a community that whenever people talk about that community, they say when those people showed up, when that group comes around, when, when they entered into uh, the situation, things changed. Things got different. Things they're, 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 they made things happen. They turned the world upside down. I was thinking this week, uh, I did a little bit of research about our area. And on the Gulf Coast, there's approximately 500 evangelical churches in the three coastal counties. Now, I've told you a million times before that Mississippi has the highest number of churches per capita of any uh, state in the country. But just in the tri-county coastal area, there's about 500 evangelical churches. Now let's just think for a moment about, here we have 500 evangelical churches, 500 churches that are endeavoring to worship the same God that we are, that, that have access to the same truth that we have, that, you know, are, I'm sure... Within the, in there, there, there's somebody within every one of those congregations, I would hope at least one person who wanted to be part of something that changes the world. But the vast majority of them are of little to no uh, consequence whatsoever. But that's just making no difference at all. The only people that know about them, for the most part, are people that go there or are connected to it. They're just there. I talked with somebody last week who was new to the area, and um, when he uh, got done with his school, he moved down here, and he decided he was going to visit uh, you know, all the churches in the area that he could visit. And he told me he visited over 60 churches. So basically, he's spent over a year every Sunday going to a different congregation, just trying to get the, the, the flow, the feel of what's going on around here in church. And I was very interested by that because I thought, wow, there's uh, a lot of things you could probably teach me because, you know, I've been to so many churches in my life that, uh, <laughs> you know. But the things that he was telling me, didn't make me happy. They made me sad. Uh, they didn't make me uh, excited. They, they bothered me. And so we see in, here in Paul's letter, we're getting a glimpse into this group of believers that they, they experience this revolutionary community that, that turns the whole world upside down. And they learn this from Paul. And so as Paul's teaching the gospel, he's also 
staying at Jason's house with Silas and with Timothy and the way that they're relating to one another. And then as people come into the... I'm just imagining in my mind, as people come into the, the faith, as people receive Jesus and accept the gospel message, that then Paul then begins to relate to them in a very different way so that instantly they realize that there is a, a change, that something changes when people... Uh, embrace the gospel and come into community with one another. I wonder, what did they talk about when they were sitting around at Jason's house? What were those conversations like? How did they specifically relate to one another? You know, what were their, what were their priorities? You know, what, in what order did Paul teach? I have all these questions that I don't know the answer to, but I'm curious. I want to know. But I know this, in verse 17, Paul says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. You see that, that, that word translated taken away? That's the Greek word where we get the word orphan. It's Paul related him being removed from Thessalonica as if he were orphaned from a family. You, you see that? Now look at what he says. He says, but we brothers feel like, I feel like we were orphaned away from you for a short time, but it was only physically because our hearts were always with you and we endeavored more eagerly to see what we, we wanted to see your face. We wanted, to, we wanted to look into your eyes. We wanted to be face to face with you. You see, they were a family. A family. And you say to yourself, well, how could they become a family, you know, in a month? They did. They became a family. And Paul just loved them in this spectacular way. And he said, we endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. I mean, my goodness. He said, I left because I had to. They're trying to kill me. But it tore me up to have to leave you. I didn't want to leave you. I wanted to stay there with you. But I knew that if I didn't leave, see, I don't think Paul left to protect himself necessarily. I think Paul left to protect them. Paul knew that if he didn't leave, the persecution was going to continue and was only going to ramp up and get worse. And so he left and went on to try to divert some of the pressure off of this group of believers. And he said, it, it tore me up to leave you. And I've been doing everything possible to get back with you again, to see your face. Look at what he says in verse 18. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. You see, he's saying as, as trouble comes my way, as, as trials come our way, as life gets difficult, as I encounter circumstances that I didn't, I'm not prepared for, that I didn't expect, that I didn't, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, ready for when when light when the rug gets jerked out from under me when when things are bad when I wake up and I think what happened things were going so good and how did this happen when the 
when the phone rings and the doctor says what we dreaded hearing or when someone we love does something that just devastates us. When those things happen, Paul's saying, all I had to do was think about you worshiping God. And I smiled. Listen, life didn't get easy for Paul after he left Thessalonica. Everywhere he went, it was trouble multiplied time and time again over. I mean, it was people trying to kill him, people trying to stone him. It was, it, it, there was nowhere that he didn't face trouble. But he said that when it got, no matter how bad it got, I would just think about you. I would think about Thessalonica. And I would just smile. Oh my goodness. I think about places around the world where we work. I think about places in this country where we work. I think about people. And sometimes when, when I'm down, when I'm discouraged, when I'm struggling, when I'm having a bad day, when things are hard, when I'm not encouraged, but I think about places where, where you work. I think about places where God has put us. And I think about the difference that's been made there. And I think about what's going on in those places in our absence while we're here. And some of those places I long to be, and, and many of you long to be in different places where our heartstrings are connected, especially to certain places. And you think about those places and you smile. And it reminds you that there's something bigger than what you're looking at in your own life, isn't there? There's something better. And so Paul says, Oh my goodness, I just think about you and I. I smile, no matter how bad it gets. Has, has anyone ever said something like that to you? Has anybody ever said to you, you know, when I'm really down, I think about you. I think about the change I've seen in your life. I think about the, the person that you were and the person that you are now. And it so encourages me. It so builds me up and edifies me. Has anybody ever... And think about what that would feel like for somebody to say that about you. To say, you know, you, when, when I hear your name, I smile. Because you represent a place in my life of great joy. And I'm reminded... That God is so much bigger than my circumstances. So in CCC, what's that? Culture change and community. People are connected in such a way that my joy is bound up with your joy. You see, the thing about this culture that Paul is describing to us right here is that his joy, of course, you see, here's the problem. See, theologically, you know, in my mind, intuitively, I have a hard time saying this because I've devoted my life and ministry to encouraging people to find their joy in the Lord, not in people or places because people are going to let you down. They're going to, they're you know, they're going to 
wound you or hurt you. They're imperfect, but God will never disappoint you. But you see, what Paul is teaching us here is, though that's true, this special community exists where when we see God doing something amazing, that in so many ways our joy is connected to other people's joy. You see, that, that, that this community, the way Paul is talking here, is that if you're doing well, I'm doing well. And if you're not okay, I'm not okay. You see, we all have people in our life that we care about. And we all, you know, there are people that we want things to go well for. But that's not what I'm talking about. This is completely different than that. This is saying that we're connected in, in, a, in a completely different way, on a whole different plane. We're connected in such a way that when you're not okay, I'm not okay. I'm not okay with the fact that you're not okay. You see, it's different. It's the kind of community that they had in Thessalonica. See, we live in a world where even in our closest relationships, we say things like, you know, or we don't say them, but the truth of the matter is, is that in many marriages, it's I'm going to love you as long as you love me. But if you quit loving me, I'm going to quit loving you. Don't act like that's not true. Or we say, I love you as long as you don't change. I thought about how many people have sat down in my office and said, well, you know, the first several years of marriage, things were one way and then they changed. As if change is like out of the question or something like that. Like some, I'm going, so, so let's... Let's rewind the tape and let's go over the vows you made again. Where in there does it say, you know, I promise to stay with you for the rest of your life so long as you don't change. I want you to change. Change is good. And even if change isn't good, even if you change bad, I'm still going to love you. I'm going to be faithful to you. But that's not the way the, the world in which we oftentimes live works. We live in a culture where commitment to people is most of the time hung up on convenience. It is. It's on convenience. And so if things just continually go bad for you, I get tired of, you know, not being okay because you're not okay, so I cut the strings and move on. Not Paul. Not the Thessalonians. No, they were connected. This is... This is different. This is I love you in such a way that when I know you're flourishing in Christ, it makes me okay. It makes my joy. I'm not just happy about that. It's a source of constant joy in my heart. It's just something that as I go through life, I just think about you and I just smile in my heart. Look at what he says in chapter 3. Go down to verse 6. He says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you 
and brought us good news of your faith and love. See, Timothy comes back, and we don't have the exact words, but I, I'm guessing that Timothy comes back to Paul and Silas, and he goes, you better sit down for this. And Paul is probably pretty stressed out at this point because he left them in great turmoil and he doesn't really know what Timothy's going to report back. And it could have very easily been, man, it's bad. You know, the, the mob killed everybody or burned all their houses down or they're all in prison or they all said, forget this, it's too hard. Or, well, I mean, he didn't know what was going to happen. But Timothy comes back and he says, Paul, you better sit down. And he says... Paul says he brought us good news of your faith and your love. You see that? Your faith and your love. It wasn't just that they were, they were still faithful to the gospel, but they were loving each other and that you, you, you always have a good remembrance of us. You see, that mattered to Paul. It, it, it matters to, to me, people that I deeply love. It matters to me what, what they think about when they think about me because I love them so much. And Paul cared. And Timothy comes back and tells him all that. And he says that, Paul, listen. You know how desperately we've wanted to get back there and see them? Well, they've been desperately trying to figure out how they can come see us. And Paul's like, man, that's great. That's awesome. Verse 7, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. And look at what he says in verse 8. For now we live. Do you see this? In other words, it's as if Paul is saying, I couldn't live wondering what was going on there. I couldn't live not knowing how you were doing. I couldn't live. But now that I know when Timothy came back and he told me those things, it was like I came alive again. I couldn't live until I knew that you were doing okay. Now, does that sound strange to you? Is that some, is that some just weird out-of-body community that you're thinking to yourself like, I don't know, Tony. I, I don't, I've never experienced anything like that. I don't know how that would work. Well, sure you do. Most of you in the room know exactly what I'm talking about. I want you to think about the person who, outside of your family, the person who had the greatest influence on your life. Who is that person? That coach that you had somewhere along the way, or that teacher, or that youth pastor, or that Sunday school teacher, or that guidance counselor, or who, who is the one that stands out in your mind? Who is the one that's, that, that when you think about that, you, you immediately, your mind goes to them. You gravitate to them and you think about them and how they had such a tremendous influence on your life. And here's my question. What was the difference between them and everybody else? What was the difference between them and all the other teachers, and all the other coaches, all the other Sunday school teachers? All the, what was the difference? Was the difference that they were super gifted teachers or communicators? Was the difference that you were on a team that won a lot? Was the difference? It was none of those things. It was that you knew somehow that they genuinely loved you. That's why they impacted your life. It's because you knew they loved you. You knew somehow they had conveyed to you that if you're not okay, they're not okay. 
That they, they took special time and interest in you. They actually cared about you. They found out what, what makes you tick and what, what things you struggle about. And that's why they impacted your life. You see, because that's how God made us. You know, it's, it's family love, isn't it? Every parent in the room knows this to be true. When your kid's not okay, you're not okay. You can't be okay. You can try not to think about it. You can try to push it out of your mind. You can try to act like it's not there. You can try to busy yourself with other things. But in the pit of your stomach, there's a knot that never goes away because you have a child that's not okay. And you know what else is true? Is that you can be physically separated from one of your children's, whether it's, you know, intentionally or unintentionally. You, you could have a, some of you in the room have a child who's uh, in the military and stationed somewhere at boot camp or going to school in another state or whatever the case may be. We can be physically, geographically separated from our child. But here's the thing. As long as we know they're okay, we're fine. But when they're not okay, we're not okay. You see, it's, it's family love. And that's what Paul has with not only Timothy and Silas, but that's what he has with the Thessalonians. He has this, this family love. I think too many Christians, way too many Christians, are gonna, they're going to come to the end of their lives, they're going to stand before God, and they're going to be prepared to have this conversation about the things that they did. You think you're going to stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ and you're going you're to say, well, Lord, I, I read my Bible every day or Lord, I went to church faithfully or Lord, I, I did this or I did that. That conversation is not going to come up. At least not in that context. You're not going to list out any of your achievements before the Lord? Mm -mm. Jesus didn't say, follow me and I'll make you a good Christian. He didn't say, follow me and I'll, I'll make you real disciplined. He didn't say, follow me and I'll make you real, uh, real committed. He said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. You follow me and I'll make you an investor in people. Isn't that what he said? He said, you follow me and I'll make you someone. If you're following me, you'll become a person that invests in people. In people. 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul talks about the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 10, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I want to show you this now. That each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. And that's what trips us up sometimes. We think, yes, it's about these things that we've done, whether good or evil. But you got to read the whole context. Verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we obeyed the commandments. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we followed all the rules. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we did. 
No, no, knowing the fear of the Lord, what we persuade men, we persuade others. We pour it into people. But what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. Verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, that giving you a cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. And look at verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you, Paul says. You see that? It's about people. It's about being an investor in people. Here's how it works on your blank. It's not about the things we do. It's about the people who flourish because of the things we do. You see, I don't want you to think that the things you do aren't important because they're very important. I just want you to know that that's just part of the equation. That's not the whole equation. That the things that you do are meant to impact people, to cause other people to flourish. That's what Paul did. Paul Paul took a, took a gospel to a people who had never heard, of, heard the gospel before. They didn't know uh, Jesus was the Messiah. They had never heard any of this before. And Paul goes in there and he begins to preach the gospel to them. And people begin to f- be saved by God and begin to follow God. And he just sows into those people. He sows into the people that were there. He so is, is in, engrossed in what can I do to make a difference in these people's lives. And he says, listen, it's, all, it's for you. It's for you. That's what it's all about. If you, if you had a, if you found out that you only had a couple of months to live. What would you do? Would you disconnect from all the things you're currently doing and uh, maybe scoop up uh, your family or, or something and begin to travel around the world and go to exotic places? Would you begin to... Uh, knock things off of your bucket list? What would you do if you knew that you had very limited time left? What are you doing now that you'd stop doing? And what are you doing now that you'd keep on doing? I thought about this. I thought, what would I do If I knew I only had a short time to live. I'd do this right here. This is what I'd do. I'd stay right here with you. And I'd preach the gospel to you until there was no breath left in me. In other words, don't you see we want to get to a place in life where it's, it's, it's not going to be ever where, you know, every single thing that we're doing 
is always going to be the most rewarding, edifying things. But the point is, is that there's a thrust in your life that you are a part of something and you're a part of people and you love a group of people in such a way that if you, if you only had a short time left in, in this life, the one thing you wouldn't want to do is be separated from them. As much as I appreciated and loved being on sabbatical, there were some aspects of it that were hard. Being away from you. As I read this passage over and over and over preparing for today, I kept thinking about that. I kept thinking about being out in California and driving through the deserts and going all, seeing all these things that you know, I've never seen before. And all the, but the whole time I'm wondering, what are you doing? What are you doing? Every time the Sunday sermon would be podcasted, I'd download it and listen to it real quick. I couldn't wait to, to hear what was preached that day. And I think about you. I think about what are you doing? What's changing? How are you doing? You know, some of you, I felt like when, when you know, it, the, 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 the sabbatical came at a tough time because we were, you know, we were really engaged in something. I was walking with you through something. And so I had to say, look, I'm going to be gone for two months. And man, that was hard. That was hard. And I wanted to say, now, here's what, here's what you do. You just ignore what you're going to hear. And you call me every week and we're going to talk about this. It's hard to say. No. When I'm down and frustrated, when I feel persecuted, when I get discouraged, when I doubt, when I feel defeated, when I'm tired and worn out, I just think about you. I think about the things that God is doing here. I think about, I look back on, on 2016 and all I can do is smile. I think, my goodness, look at what God has done in this community. Look at what He's done. Look at how He's used you. Look at how He's, he's grown you. Look at the amazing things that He's done. It just makes me so happy. This is what's going to matter at the end. It's what's going to matter. When you stand at the judgment seat of Christ... That whole conversation is going to be about people. It's going to be about people. And for me, this is the thing. Man, if, if God doesn't jack up my plan, for me, the whole conversation just might be about one group of people. Wouldn't that be great? If I could live my whole life and then stand before Christ and every single thing that is brought up and talked about will be connected to this fellowship. That's awesome. That makes me happy. So here's a question for you. MMBC, do you have any idea the impact you have had on this state and this country and around the world? Do you really know do you really, really know 
what God has done in you. You know, this is the thing, is that I know for so many of you, when I say that, you just smile. Because you're, you're, just, you're part of that, that process. You know, you're just engaged in that process. And you, you just think, my goodness, it's just so awesome to see what, what God's doing. And, and, and many things, that, that's the thing about being around a place like this. You can't, none of us can be involved in everything. We couldn't even come close. But we can just marvel at all that God's doing in so many different ways, in so many different directions. But I go back to the same reality that we keep talking about in Thessalonians. Is that proximity doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be transformation. Sitting in these pews at this time in this building, listening to the same sermons doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to be transformed, that you're going to be part of this transformative community. You can be right in the midst of it. It can be right in front of your face and you just miss it. And I thought about this. And I thought, how can I, how can I help some of you? That I, I, I'm sure that there are some of you right now that feel a sense of a little bit of frustration. And that frustration is, I don't believe that's of God. I believe that frustration is of the flesh. And I thought a long time about this. I thought, what makes the community that I experience where I'm not okay if you're not okay? And when I know you're flourishing, I'm good. What makes that happen? And I realized that in all those relationships... It's more than you know that I love you and I know that you love me. But it's that I'm not looking to get something from you. And you're not looking necessarily to get something from me. And that I think that when we come together in community and we just put others before ourselves and we take the posture of a servant. You see... Paul didn't go into Thessalonica and, and start lecturing them about, listen, you, you need to become a family. And you need to start doing this. And you need to, he didn't do that. He just, he just showed them the way he loved the people around him. And they were like, yeah, I get that. He, he went in there and showed them, listen, I, I, don't, I didn't come here to get anything from you. I came to give. I came to serve. And when you have that posture, you put yourself in a position. I think that what I would say to you this morning in love, in love, is that if you're in this setting, but yet on the outside looking in, you need to become the person that you want other people to be in your life. 
You just simply can't force it. It doesn't work like that. And so either you just make the posture of your life putting other people's, people ahead of you. Just put them ahead of you. You think about all these faces in this room and all the, the things that you do. How you're just continually engaged in, in serving and doing. And I, I think about that feeling that I feel when I turn around at the fall festival and I just look back across that field and I see thousands of people. Just thousands of people everywhere. And I see all these MMBC t-shirts just smiling and serving and loving. And I just think, God, that's what it's all about. I think about all our foster families. I think about all of you, that's how you support them and serve them and love them. I think, about, I think about what I feel like whenever I go to Jackson and I walk into the Supreme Court building and I feel kind of intimidated by all these people there and, and, and I'm listening to all these people talking about Michael Memorial and they don't even know you. It's just crazy. And they're saying, there's this church on the coast. These people are unreal and they they just keep coming back to it and coming back to it and they and and every time as we go all over the state and the conversation always comes back to you know we had a great training in the pine belt or we had a great training in jackson or we had a great training in oxford or we had a great training in in yazoo and a bunch of families signed up to be to 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 love kids and to Become foster homes. But then they say, but the problem is when we, when we leave the community, there's no Michael Memorial there. And I, I just think, wow, you know? It's just a reminder. When I was, as you know, born in Hawaii and as I was growing up, living on the side of a mountain that overlooked the Pacific Ocean, and you know, as a small child, I, I thought the whole world was paradise. I thought everybody had crystal clear water and beautiful white sand beaches and glorious weather. I mean, I thought that all the kids in the world ran around barefooted, never wore shoes, never wore a shirt. It's what I thought. And then when my parents got divorced, I will never forget the, the feeling of when that plane landed at Louis Armstrong International Airport. It was cold and dreary and damp and overcast, much like it is today. And I looked out the window and I thought, where am I? What kind of place is this? And I realized at that moment for the first time everything that I had had. It 
See, that's kind of how it is around here. That so many of us have been on this journey together for so long, for so many decades, that maybe if we're not careful, we just start taking things for granted. And we forget how wonderful and special it is. It's good for us to know what's happening everywhere else. It's good for us to consider, hey, am I being changed by this content, this setting that God's put me in? Is, is the context of my story being written for the glory of God? You know, here we are at the Christmas season. I'm going to give you a present in a few minutes. But before we pray, I just want you to think about what happened when Jesus was riding that donkey into Jerusalem. And they're shouting and screaming and waving palm branches at him. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 19, he started to weep. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, if only you had known, if only you had known what would make for your peace. But now you're blind to it. And I think about, I'm not okay that anyone here today might get to the end of their life and realize, if only I had known that what would make for my peace was right in front of my face. And I missed it. And I missed it. I'm literally surrounded by people who are changing the culture in this state, in this country, and around the world. God has been good to us. He's been good to us. Let's stand and bow our heads.